Hey, Katie, do you know what the first computer bug was? Some sort of problem or typo in the code or something? No, it was a moth. I'm sorry, what? Hello and welcome to Science Brunch. I'm Katie McKissick, aka Beatrice, a biologist, and I'm joined with my good friend, May Prince. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about Grace Hopper. Indeed. Yes. Someone I have heard of. Not all of the scientists we talk about are people that I've heard of previously, which is why this is learning for us, too. Yeah. We're learning along with you guys, except we did the research earlier. So we're just learning before we tell you. And sometimes we pull out random people that we've never heard of who who are cool. Yeah, we just draw names out of a hat. That we think you should know about, too. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But before we talk about Grace. Yeah, what what is our science starter for today? Sure. So every episode we start with just a little kind of in case you missed it sort of little little science appetizer for our science brunch mm-hmm. and today i'm going to talk about a, something that hap- came out in the news a little while ago the oldest vertebrate is a shark and have you heard about this yes yes and i love it i know please so, continue. so sorry anyway so the world's oldest vertebrate is a shark that could possibly live for up to 500 years and that's an, that's an estimate. I mean, it's not like they are, you know, positive about that, but it, it could be as long as that, which means that there could be a shark out there that's been alive during the entire course of the history we've, we've talked about on Science Brunch. Yeah. Because I think the, the farthest we've gone back Galileo. is Galileo, yeah, in the 1600s. Yeah. And that means that one of these sharks could have just been being born and it's still alive. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. But do you know how they know roughly how old they are? No. So what they did is they looked at the shark's eyes because that's one place where there's not a lot of cellular division happening. And so it kind of gets locked mm. in place and they look at radioactive signatures from the, te- the radio, the nuclear test from the fifties and sixties. What? And so what they did was they found a two, like a little over two meter shark uh-huh. that, uh, that because it had kind of these, these isotopes in, in its eyes, they said, okay, so this shark is probably 60 years old and it's only this big. Gotcha. So if we extrapolate the ones that are, you know, way, 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 way bigger, oh. probably are this old. Cause they grow and, pretty steadily, but they, very slowly. Yeah. And they could be as old as 500 years. So they're definitely, Definitely, oh you know, over 250 years old. They could be as old as 500. That is insane. And they don't even reach sexual maturity, so they don't reproduce until they're over 100 years old. Oh my God! So that's too long to wait, people. <laughs> yeah, what is? I just was like, if you yeah, are over 100 they have to years wait a very long time. <laughs> the 100-year-old virgin. <laughs> a new movie from Judd Apatow. And it's a shark, and he eats everyone in the end. Yay! <laughs> but yeah, these are uh, Greenland sharks. Yeah, and so, wasn't there a theory also that they live longer because it's colder waters? And so they think that maybe aging, you know, might slow down. Yeah, yeah, they're just in cryo chambers all the time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and they're just like, they have to be in constant motion. So that was the other thing. They said that uh, it would be interesting to study these sharks because they know that they're, because sharks have to keep moving in order to keep water over, you know, like over their gills, oxygenating. Yeah. yeah. And so they've been in constant motion. Their muscles have been in constant motion for 500 years. It sounds exhausting. It is exhausting. I, I just like, want to uh, take a nap. Exactly. Take Santiago's advice from last episode. Yeah. Just take a nap. Take a nap. But yeah, it's crazy. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm already scared to go in the ocean because sharks. Are you scared of sharks? Yes. Oh. Because, dude, they have tons of teeth. They're just waiting around to bite you. They're not, though. They are. <laughs> we just look like chicken wings to them. 
Well, so the, the issue is that they don't want to bite us. Have we ever talked about this before? No. Okay, so I saw a shark once when I was surfing. And you immediately died of fright? No. So, well, I, I will admit I took my feet out of the water just in case because it was swimming right right for me. So basically, I would see a lot of seals and things uh-huh. at this beach where, um, where we used to go. And uh, I, so, yeah, I saw some kind of, fl- you know, fluttering in the water and I looked over. I said, oh, is another seal? Because it's always so much fun seeing. And sometimes you see dolphins. So you kind of never yeah. know. So I looked over. I'm like, oh, what's that? And then I just, yeah, saw kind of a triangle coming out of the water. And I said, oh, oh, it's a shark. <laughs> and then it, oh, it kind of was, you know, circling something. And then it came and then it just made just made a straight line toward me from, mm, let's say, 100 feet away. Uh-huh. How many meters is that for our European listeners? I'm terrible oh. at this. I'm no. sorry, guys. <laughs> just, um, just do some math. I speak Celsius, but I don't speak meters when, I, when I'm estimating distances. <laughs> um, but anyway, so it just comes straight towards me. And I went, oh. And it's funny because I will admit I, I didn't realize that they would so often um, actually travel with their tail, their, their tail, their fin out of the water like uh-huh. that. I kind of thought that was kind of Hollywoodish or something, yeah. very jazzy. But um I said, oh, okay, you know, fair enough. And I was, I'm wearing a full wetsuit and I'm wearing even, you know, wetsuit uh, shoes, like footies. Uh-huh. So, um, so I was like, yeah, I, I look like, you know, like little seal legs or something. So I did pull my feet out of the water because I was sitting up on my board. So I pulled my feet out of the water and just lied, uh, you know, on my board as the shark just went under me. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, I am about to pass out right now. <laughs> I, I thought it was pretty cool. I was like, wow, okay. And then I look at, I, I'm at the very end of a, like a line of surfers, and they all had, were watching. So I turn over, and yeah, and they're all like, woo! They're like, you versus the shark, and just kind of all entertained by it and stuff, because there was a shark that would go to that beach all the time. So everybody kind of was familiar with him. <laughs> See, if I, if I knew a shark went to a beach, I'd be like, okay cross that beach off the map never going there again well i kind of just feel like this you know maybe this shark because they they will get they have their hunting grounds and they'll just kind of stay there and stuff i Uh mean if he's around surfers all the time he probably you know knows the difference between a seal and a surfer doesn't care because it's they don't they don't want us we don't taste good we don't they're just like uh, like if they ever do they know have have they read a yelp review about was it because they'll they i i think that is a thing people say just because sharks if they bite somebody, mm-hmm. they never like go back for, they're never like, oh yeah, that was really good. I'm going to definitely try to get the rest of it. Like they don't want to eat you. Like if they ever bite you, it's because they're like, what's that? Yeah. And they're just kind of like, eh, cause they don't have hands. So they just kind of would test them <laughs> just like, it's like a dog <laughs> sniffing you, except it hurts more. Yes. Except it kills you immediately. <laughs> well, and I, I'll, I mean, I also wasn't afraid because I'm on a surfboard. I mean, surfers almost never um have issues with sharks so even if you were to get bitten or have a, a run-in with a shark you're on a flotation device you're gonna be able to you know get into shore pretty fast i guess yeah but, but yeah i will admit you know if you're if you're swimming and you get a bite that's a problem because it you you bleed very quickly if you're in salt water right right <laughs> so. i mean I, I saw this nature special once about you know these researchers in a tiny dinghy and they're like hauling this outline of a seal like cut out of plywood or something behind them and they have a camera and they're like we're gonna research how many times a shark bites the seal because they wanted to like you know figure out attack patterns and all that stuff and of course they're off the 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 coast of south africa which is one of the most notorious like great white you know hunting grounds 
And then this, you're like waiting, you're like focused in on this little piece of plywood, like waiting for a shark head to like pop out and start biting it. And then all of a sudden, this thing the size of like a Buick just bursts out of the water and just (laughs) engulfs the entire seal outline with all of its millions of teeth. It comes completely out of the water and then smashes. And I'm like, dudes. You are in like a canoe. Like <laughs> this thing is going to eat you. And they're all like, oh God. <laughs> and so like that's what I picture in my mind. Every time like I hear like, oh, I was on a surfboard and I just picked up my legs. I'm like, no. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Danger. It's gonna come from underneath you. And yeah. well, I mean, because they were they were probably further out in the water, so the shark. Yeah. Because yeah, because sharks do that, so there there's no way for the seal to escape. Exactly. You know? like exactly. Just going I just automatically air. envisioned yeah. the whole like kraken situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Directly to kraken. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I did. You know, it was coming. It was swimming toward me. And I said, "Well, I know that sharks, you know, very rarely bite. I know that if anything, it would just be like, oh, what's this? I'll, I'll take my feet out of the water, but it's not like it's going to knock me off my board on purpose. I, I don't know. It's just... I like how you had time for all these thoughts. I would have just well, had it did. internal it took a, screaming. It took, took a while. It was just like, <laughs> <laughs> just humming along its way. <laughs> Hello, surfer. Yeah. If that would have been me, they'd be like, well, we went surfing and, and May died. You're like, oh, was she eaten by a shark? No, she just died of fright. The shark was 100 feet away. <laughs> well... Do you go in the ocean much? No, because never. I have news for you. They're always out there. No, I know. I never go in. This is my <laughs> policy. See, okay, this all goes back to when I was a little girl and, I, and we were like on the beach. And I don't think, I think my mom was tired and she didn't want to like keep watching over me going in and out of the water. And it was like two inches of water. But still, you know, when you're a kid and you're two, you can trip and fall and drown or whatever. So she told me, she's like, you know, there are sharks in the ocean. <laughs> And immediately I was like, well, then I'm done with the ocean. (laughs) And I didn't go in. And it's so ridiculous. It's two inches of water. There's no way that a shark, like, unless it, like, really tried, was ever going to get up on the beach. But ever since then, I'm kind of like, well, I'm fine. (laughs) I'll stick with the pool. Totally understandable. But yeah, I don't know. I'm... There are other things I'm afraid of, but for some reason, I'm not super afraid of sharks. I'm super afraid of sharks. Like I'm afraid of sharks right now. We're like <laughs> those land miles sharks from the coast. <laughs> those land sharks, they're tricky, I tell you. There could be one flopping around the backyard right now. What's <laughs> <laughs> like that XKCD comic where they, they have the shark suspended with a with a helium balloon and uh-huh. it's just flying through the air. <laughs> yeah. I mean if they if they what were if just we a done? little bit smarter, we'd all be doomed. <sighs> oh man. Well they've been around for five hundred years. They're they're yeah. not gonna do anything. They are getting smarter. <laughs> This is a problem. <laughs> they have all that time to study. Don't drop your smartphone in the ocean. They will figure, they will figure stuff out. And they will come after us. <laughs> They're like, oh, an iPad. It's perfect. Now I can rule the world. Need everyone. Oh my god. <laughs> so yeah, so, that's so. A, this has been my rational fear of sharks. What does Grace Hopper think of sharks? I have no idea. Oh, okay. Well, I I mean, well, actually, she probably isn't afraid of them because she was in the navy. Right. So when you're in the Navy, you're usually in a boat. In the Navy. <laughs> of some kind. You're not swimming around in the sharks. Doesn't the Navy also have airplanes? They do. I'm actually pretty confused about and all this. And they land and fly off of boats, I believe. Um, she was in the Navy during World War II. Okay. So anyway, we'll, we'll get into it. So she was actually born Grace Brewster Murray on December 9th, 1906 in New York City. All right. So a while ago, a little bit over a hundred years ago, um, 
she had all sorts of hobbies growing up, you know, like needlepoint, playing the piano, reading. And she notoriously, when she was about seven years old, she like loved machines and like wanted to know how they worked. And so when she was seven, she went around the house and gathered up like every single alarm clock she could find, which is like half a dozen alarm clocks. And she just started disassembling all of them. Oh my God, I love it. And so by the time her mom found her, she had just taken apart every single (laughs) alarm clock in the house. And instead of yelling at her, her mom was like, all right, you can keep one. (laughs) Well, she's like, can you please put one back together so we can all get up on time tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) But you can keep one and you can play around with it and figure out how it works. And so that's kind of, you know, she had a curious mind and she wanted to figure out how things worked. I do love that she took all of them. Yeah. Because no, she, she wants like, to compare. I, clearly, clearly the scientific method was at yeah. work here. I mean, yeah, you yeah. can't have a sample size of one. Exactly. That doesn't what? make any sense. That would be ridiculous. And maybe they all didn't work the same. <laughs> Who knows? So yeah, so she, she grew up. She was she was super smart. Uh, she applied to Vassar early admittance. Didn't get in at 16. Tragedy. <laughs> Into every life, a little rain must fall. But she was accepted at 17, so she went. And she ended up graduating with her BA in math and physics in 1928. So not bad. And uh, then a little bit while later, she got married. That's how she got her last name of Hopper. But she actually divorced in the mid-40s, but she ended up keeping her name. So That's she, probably hard to do. From then on, she was Grace Hopper. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, getting I divorced back then, I think, was then. quite a to-do. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think there, there were any details about that, but it was just, yeah, she kept her name. So from then on, she was Grace Hopper. Um, you know, my great-grandma's maiden name was Murray, and she was also from New York. I'm, maybe they're related. I'm just kidding. Really? I, I have no that would idea. be amazing. <laughs> you should find out. <laughs> so after graduating uh, with her BA in math and physics, she joined the Vassar faculty. She was teaching math, and she continued her studies in math at Yale University. And she ended up getting her master's in 1930 and her PhD in 1934. And um, it was not only was she only one of four women in the doctoral program, there was like 10 students or so, which, you know, is not actually a bad ratio. Yeah, what? I thought you were going to say four out of a million. Yeah. (laughs) But it was very unusual just in general for people to get PhDs in math. Like, Mm. since it said between 1862 and 1934, which is, you know, when she got her degree, only less than 1,300 math PhDs had been given out. Interesting. I wonder why that is. I don't know. People just weren't into it, I guess. I mean, I guess it's just because maybe PhDs at the time were for more applied specific things. I don't know. I don't know. But she was Mm. into it. She loved math. Yeah, that's awesome. So she got her PhD and then she continued to work at Vassar and she actually got promoted to associate professor by 1941 when she was 35. So not bad. Like on a good career trajectory to you know academic success and then you know world war ii happened oh that's right world war ii it was like a like a little bump (laughs) in the course of human history that yeah so we always get to world war ii i know how many times have we had to talk i know i know and much like you know um katherine johnson who basically was able to get a job because World War II came along. They're like, well, all the guys are out fighting and we need work done. Mm -hmm. So I guess we'll hire women. A league of their own style. Exactly, exactly. Except in math and science. And so she, uh, she decided to join the Navy. You know, a lot of women were kind of enlisting in the armed forces then. They weren't in combat roles, but they were doing other stuff like, you know, civil duties or whatever. 
And the Navy actually had this all-female division that they called the Women Accepted for Voluntary Emergency Service. Oh. Waves. Ooh. The military Did loves they do that their on acronyms. Uh, I don't think so. I think it was a happy accident. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I actually have a serious pet peeve when people force acronyms into oh, no. a word. For sure it was forced. <laughs> I don't like it. Dude, the, yeah. The military loves to force acronyms. That so does so does science. It's kind of what they do, you know. Aside from like an engineering, protecting oh. freedom oh and whatever, the God. second thing they do is make acronyms. Yeah, it's like their second biggest export. Um, so yeah, so they created that in 1942 to kind of allow women to serve, and she chose the Navy because her grandfather served in the Navy. And she said, you know, he would turn over in his grave if she joined any other service. So family loyalty brought her to the Navy and she joined at age 37, which is right kind of on the cusp of, you know, when they'll kind of accept recruits. And she went through boot camp and everything. And she actually had to obtain an exemption because she was underweight. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. She's a tiny lady. And the weight requirement was 120 pounds and she weighed like 105 soaking wet. And so So she's super (laughs) short. I think so. I think she's short and just tiny. Petite. Yeah. And so, you know, perfect. They should have stuck her in a submarine. Yeah, I was going to say, she takes a very Navy, little room. In you know, a smaller size, they just pack you in a smaller <laughs> compartment. So it's perfect. Um, but yeah, so Probably she... Probably good for, for uh, interstellar travel as well. <laughs> exactly. You eat less. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so she went through boot camp. She came out a first lieutenant. And then due to her math background, they were like, well, we'll just stick you in the Bureau of Ordnance Computation Project, which was at Harvard University. So, you know, the whole country was working towards kind of the same military goals at the time. Like, it just all energy was focused on not letting Germany take over the world. So she started working on designing a machine that would make fast and difficult calculations for laying minefields Mm. and that kind of thing. So, you know, math to kill people. But whatever. It was... For a good cause? I mean, I don't know. Okay. (laughs) If, if, if you're going to kill someone in a war, it might as well be Nazi Germany. Right. I'm just going to say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, don't you miss the times when, when the quote unquote enemies were so straightforward? Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's why we can't let go of that World War II and the Nazi stuff. Like movies with Nazis, Indiana Jones movies, Nazis, yep. Nazis. It's like, they're the perfect villain because they're just so straightforward. Yep. They are like a Marvel villain. They're like, I'm a bad guy. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to monologue yeah, you, about what I'm going to do. If you and you have feel, to try to stop me. Feel good about killing someone. Just make them a Nazi. It's <laughs> yeah, fine. Yeah. Simpler times. So at Harvard, they were working on this series of uh, computers called the Mark series, and they were on Mark One, and she was like one of the first two or three people to program this computer. So it was like cutting edge technology. They were trying to figure out, you know, how to make them more efficient, um, how they should work, what languages they should use, that kind of thing. Um, and so she said it was an impressive beast. The Mark One was fifty-one feet long, eight feet high, and five feet deep. Wow. So. Not a small computer. This yeah. is not a laptop. This is back in the day when it was like punch cards. It was a room. Mm. Like, they, yeah, it was just huge. Um, and she didn't really know anything about computers when she first started out. I mean, she was a mathematician. She taught math. She had her degree in math. So she spoke the language of computers. Supposedly. But, like, she still wasn't clear on, like, how it kind of translated into the practical application of computer science. And so she said when she first started, she was kind of lost. Like, she didn't really understand the terms or kind of what things meant. And so she called the engineering building and was like, what is a nanosecond? Will you please send (laughs) me a nanosecond? And they were like, okay. (laughs) So they cut off this length of wire, which is about a foot long. 
and they sent her <laughs> this bundle of, you know, really, really thin wires. They were like, okay, this is a nanosecond, basically. Like, this is the amount of time it takes for data to travel this length. And so it kind of gave her an idea of, you know, they were trying to think about how long it took to transfer data around the world, to and from satellites, you know, all that thing that came into the space race later. There's a reason why we get delayed information. Like when when they landed the Mars rover on Mars, when we saw that, like if you watched online and saw like JPL cheering about landing the rover, that was like 14 minutes. <laughs> that was like 14 minutes after the thing actually landed on Mars. And it's because it takes so long Data can only travel at the speed of light, you know, the, the fastest it can travel, and it takes so long to get back to Earth. So this is kind of a concept that she had to wrap her mind around as well. It was like, what is a nanosecond? I mean, a nanosecond is one billionth of a second, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. So if you think data can travel that far in that amount of time, um, and she actually carried these things around. Like, she was actually a great science communicator. So she would carry these bundles of wires around, and when she had to explain to, you know, leadership or just regular people kind of what she did and the things that she had to consider she would hand them a length of wire and say well here's a nanosecond this is what a nanosecond is and i saw so funny i saw a clip hold on i've got a kit for this everybody hold on (laughs) second i've got a prop hold on and so i saw her on david letterman i think it was in the in the 80s uh, around then and she you know pulls out a bundle she's like well here you go here's a nanosecond and hands it to him and she also would carry around she like had this little packet of pepper and she would say, you know, this is a packet of picoseconds because each grain is basically the length. You know, a pico is, is one trillionth of a second, so one thousandth of a nanosecond. So if she took one of those lengths of wire and cut it up into a thousand pieces, that was, you know, basically a grain of pepper And that's size. how far the data is traveling in, in a one. picosecond. Exactly. Exactly. And so the other thing that she did on the other end was she said a microsecond, which is just a millionth of a second, so much larger is like a coil of wire. Oh. And when computer programmers talk about microseconds and like, oh, it's just a microsecond, it's fine. She's like, I want to hang one of these coils above each of their desks and be like, this is what you're talking about every time you say you waste a microsecond. Mm-hmm. And she's, <laughs> I saw a video clip. She's like, yeah, I want to hang it above their desks or maybe around their necks to remind <laughs> them. It's like, oh, God. Well, yeah, because yeah, every difference is a thousand yeah, you know, like that a thousand yeah. times, whatever. So it's exactly. like, no, actually really it does matter. So it does make a this huge difference. It's like difference. a logarithmic scale, you guys. Exactly. And it makes a huge difference when you're sending, you know, data around the world or from Mars or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was always something that stuck in her mind. So these computers are huge. I mean, they're like the ancient kind, these dinosaurs. And at the time, <laughs> they were working on, I think, the Mark II computer. So it was like in the same series. And they were having problems and they didn't understand what was going on and they finally found that there was a moth caught in one of the circuits what? which was causing a short you know oh my god and so <laughs> they just like removed it with tweezers and it became i mean the the myth is is that she uh coined the term like debugging a computer oh my god but that's not actually quite true they use the term bug for all sorts of machinery like before that time oh, okay, okay however it is cute that they found a physical bug yeah. in the computer and they removed it and they actually taped it into the logbook. Uh-huh. <laughs> and someone who, it's not in her handwriting, but someone wrote relay number 70 panel F moth in relay. First actual case of bug being found. Oh my God. <laughs> Wait, I must admit that it is a side effect of having enormous computers I'd never thought about is that 
the because of course you have to worry about dust or things yep. like that if you with you know the laptops and the phones we have and stuff or water getting into them but you're usually not worried about animals yeah <laughs> like bugs and rats and like exactly. there could have been a possum in I there know. it's like you guys there's another squirrel <laughs> in the computer oh god these squirrels are just the worst de squirrel the computer you guys i've got a kitten infestation <laughs> in the mark ii oh. but yeah there's a, there's a, a picture i mean i think up until very recently it was displayed i think it might be still displayed in either a naval facility or the smithsonian but the, the log book is there and it still has like this moth like this scotch tape into, into the log book <laughs> that's so, awesome yeah, so that's a, that's a good bit of, uh, of trivia i don't think that museum collections people would be very fond of that form of <laughs> I know. Well, preservation. They're like, scotch tape, <laughs> you amateurs. What are you doing? Use a pin. Jeez, yeah. I do like that they kept it, though. Um, so anyway, so after World War II finally ended, 1945, she requested... Who won, by the way? Oh, um, just, just spoiler kidding. alert. <laughs> after we won, we stopped the Nazis. Um, she requested a transfer to the regular Navy, uh, but she was re- she was denied due to her age. By that time, she was 38. She was too old. Uh, oh my god um but she was hooked on computer programming at this point she's been working on it for several years it was a way to use math that she'd never thought of before and so she continued to work at harvard as a research fellow under a navy contract so she kind of like gave up her career at vassar and academia in order to work in kind of the practical world as a researcher um, and keep developing these computer programs, which they were still working on. I mean, they had kind of started computer science during World War II, and then they continued afterwards. So she did that. And then later, a couple years later, she joined the Eckert Mochley Computer Corporation as a senior mathematician. And that was where they were developing um, some of the earliest computers. And their newest computer, the UNIVAC, which stands for the Universal Automatic Computer One. <laughs> Great name. Not as good as acronyms as the Navy, but still, you know, not bad. Um, and it was computer that record information on a high-speed magnetic tape, which was, like, cutting edge, because before that, it was all punch cards. Okay. Yeah. Like, so, so magnetic before, tape, kind of like VHS tapes. So that was magnetic tape, right? I believe so. Yeah. And so, you know, when we talked about Babbage like and how he was making his analytical engine, mm-hmm. that kind of used the punch card system. Like, I think his punch cards were more like, you know, balsa wood or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it was the same system of, like, feeding information into the computer and the computer kind of figuring out, you know, by that series of holes, oh, this is what they mean. So they're translating the language of holes into what you actually want them to do. Don't laugh. <laughs> Sorry. Don't laugh. The language of holes is a legitimate I am language. So mature, you guys. Oh, um, I mean, it's so funny thinking about all the different ways that we've stored data. You know, punch cards. Yeah. And- and on all the stuff that we used as kids, like the floppy disks, the ones that were actually floppy, exactly. and then the hard disks that we still called floppy disks. Yeah, even for though they some were hard. reason, but the but like the remember the really floppy ones that were really yep. thin, they and were plasticky. huge and black, and they had yeah. a hole in the middle. Yeah, yeah, a hole. and you could just kind of move it around. And it was really fun, <laughs> and like and now if people find them, they're like, "What is this?" Or that, like that. There's I don't know. I've just seen it on the internet somewhere. It's a yellow um, hard disk. <laughs> Someone wrote, "Why is this post-it note so?" <laughs> So the what I've seen is like a, an audio cassette tape and a pencil, and people are like, "Kids, you know? kids will never know the relationship between these two objects." <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that was like way before the time. Um, but they were, you know, 
they were developing and so they were on to magnetic tape super advanced so at the time like everyone was kind of in their own bubble working on these different computer programs and languages and trying to develop it and she thought that was stupid she's like (laughs) it's like this is so inefficient like everyone's working on their own language separately and no one's like sharing information and so she decided that it would make more sense if programmers got together and collected and shared common portions of programs to kind of like, you know, jumpstart the process and... And maybe set some standards, I'm guessing, too? Set some standards, make sure they're all on the same page, using the computer in the same way, because how are you going to get computers to talk to each other? Yeah, if which, you, you guys know, don't talk to each the, other. Down the line, if they don't talk to each other, they don't even use the same language. Mm-hmm. So it was all about how to input information in a language that the computer could understand and then how to get the computer to spit out language that you could understand. In 1952, her team created the first compiler for computer languages. So it would render word instructions into code that can then be read by computers. And it was kind of, she wanted something, she wanted to develop a language that was as easy to understand as English. It wasn't like all random, you know, numbers right, like or whatever. Like it actually yeah. made sense. Right. So, you know, if you think about HTML code, for example, like you're typing kind of Englishy mm-hmm. type things into the computer and then the computer understands what you're trying to say. So she thought that was the way to go instead of just, you know, we're not machines. Um, So this compiler was a precursor for the common business-oriented language, which is known as COBOL, I guess. I'm not a computer programmer, so yeah, I've never heard of that one. But yeah, it's 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 a thing that I didn't know about. Um, But yeah, so she she just wanted to be easier. She wanted programmers to get together and um, and share information. And in 1959, she, they helped form a consortium that was called the Conference on Data System Languages. And the purpose was to develop a standard programming language that they could all use and understand together. Um, so that was kind of her, uh, her crusade That's in the computer awesome. world. Yeah. She was like, well, we should all be able to talk to <laughs> yeah, each other, right? I love everyone else is probably like, oh, yeah, probably would be a good idea. Hmm. She believed that programs should be written in English and then translated into binary code. So she actually created the program known for that, which is called Flowmatic. Yeah. So yeah, it was this whole thing of trying to make things easier. So she has this kind of bird's eye view. It's like, okay, so we've been doing all this stuff. Let's make a few things standard and easier and yeah. really like easy for everybody to do. The leader of the computer nerds, which is nice because it sounds like they needed a leader. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> and during the, this time, you know, she kind of gained a reputation as, you know, this superstar in the computer science world. And she was known as Amazing Grace. So that's not bad. Hmm, that's not that's a bad cool. nickname. Um so she actually retired from the Naval Reserve at the rank of commander in 1966. And then seven months later, the Navy came back and was like, um, <laughs> we really need you. Can you can You're you super back, please? important. So she was recalled to active duty. Wow. Like they can just re-enlist you basically. They're like, well, we nope. need you. So we're you canceling can't your leave. retirement. Exactly. So they canceled her retirement, brought her back for a six month period. She was 60 years old at the time. And then uh, she was the leader in the Naval Data Automation Command. And this turned into an indefinite assignment because they realized computers weren't going away, I guess. <laughs> and they still needed her. Um, this fad of, of computers just wouldn't die. Exactly. And then, you know, in 1969, which is a couple of years later, she was voted Man of the Year by the Data Processing Management Association. <laughs> um i think the first woman to be voted man of the year by that i assume so yes (laughs) they're probably like oh this is awkward (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, so she did that. And then at age 65, 1971, she tried to retire again. And they were like, nope, man. Sorry. I mean, it's really cool that they were like, no, seriously, you're too important. But can, can a girl get like a vacation? I know. Or what? I know. And, and so she was like, all right, fine. So she just continued to oh work God, on so the computer funny. languages. And she was the director of the Navy Programming Languages Group. And she was promoted to captain in 1973. So, you know, at least she's still getting promoted. Like, but, you know, yeah, the woman's 65. That's traditional retirement age. Mm-hmm. And then the Navy's like, no, no, you can't go anywhere. Keep keep coming back. Yeah. Um, I would not like that. I know, I know. <laughs> and Navy so she, she basically stayed in the Navy. She pioneered, you know, their implementing technology standards for them and, you know, kept them running, basically, in the computer science world. And then she was promoted to Commodore... Uh, by special presidential appointment commodore yeah it was renamed rear admiral a couple years later but this was by uh, ronald reagan okay so this was you know 1983 so she keeps getting promoted it's not bad i mean by this point she's in her mid-70s so finally she's like thanks everybody can i retire now well finally in 1986 (laughs) that's just me saying that they're like you can retire oh but she's like well I don't want to retire. Yeah, now I don't even want to anymore. <laughs> I was like, why? Why would What's I retire the, now? What am I going to do now? <laughs> so she retired involuntarily, basically like, no, we're retiring you. Oh my God. Yeah. Really? After all that, they just made her? Yeah. Ah! But um, she, at the time of her retirement, she was the oldest active duty officer in the Navy at age 80. So she didn't want to retire. So she's like, well, I'll just keep working. And she became a senior consultant at Digital Equipment Corporation. And she worked, I believe, up until her death several years later. Like, she was, you know, I think she died. Let's see. She died in 1992 at the age of 85. So she worked up until that point. She kept winning awards. She got a bunch of honorary degrees. Um, She said that even though she had many awards, she had to prove herself repeatedly. And she said, if you do something once, people will call it an accident. If you do it twice, they call it a coincidence. But if you do it a third time and you've proven it, it's natural law. So as a lady in the math fields and computer science, she just had to keep, you know, doing everything the best possible way. Three times in a row. Three times in a row. (laughs) Three plus times. Exactly. That's funny. So, yeah, so she, you know, she was man of the year for that association in 1969. She was the first person in the United States and the first woman from any country to make a distinguished fellow of the British Computer Society in 1973. And uh, she received the National Medal of Technology in 1991. And she was the first woman individual uh, recipient of that award. So she was a first in a lot of areas, and I think that's why the Navy wanted to keep her around so long. And she continued to do good work after they kind of pushed her out into retirement. Um, she died in Arlington, Virginia, uh, January 1st, 1992, and she was 85. And she was buried in Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors because she had say, served in the so Navy for so long. she died very close to the, 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 yep. Yep. the cemetery over there. And all sorts of things are named after her, like the USS Hopper. Uh, I think Microsoft has a group called the Hoppers. Uh, there's a supercomputer named after her. And uh, they also see the Anita Borg Foundation also has a Grace Hopper celebration every year. And they're like a computer science organization. And so 
they kind of get together and celebrate her in recognition of her accomplishments. I am really glad that so much was recognized while she was still alive. I'm so glad that it's not another one of those stories where she did all this work and everyone was like, and then after she was gone, they're like, oh my God, let's do all this great stuff for her. That's really cool. And she, there are some video clips. We'll, we'll, We'll tweet them of her, like, like I said, on David Letterman and different places, like kind of giving science communication talks. She was a big science communicator. She believed in educating the next generations um, and leading up, you know, young people through computer science. So she was big into that. So there are clips online and she sounds like she was a riot. Like she's just, she's savvy. She's smart. She's funny. And she's super old, which is like (laughs) a great combination. (laughs) <laughs> got like a sassy old lady yeah on the letterman super show. cool grandma did she have kids no kids she was divorced in 45 and then uh i don't think she ever remarried okay so there's no more there's no grace hoppers around nope okay nope um but she was a super cool lady yeah and uh it's funny like the her naval portrait you know they always take a portrait with like the flag in the background and everything she has her arms crossed and she looks very intimidating Hardcore. for for an elf. No. God, that's right. She's really tiny. She's really tiny. And you, have to, you have to put that in, yeah, in, yeah. in your in your mental with image. her horn rim glasses. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. That is the picture I have in my mind. Yeah, yeah, with those glasses. Yeah, awesome. Well, she sounds like a perfect candidate for brunch. Oh yeah, I'm sure she'd be into brunch. Oh yes. So yeah, we we would have to do that. Yeah, hear all her cool stories, dude. Please. <laughs> Yeah, she loves to tell the story about the moth and debugging the computers and all that. So I think that's kind of how the myth formed that she was the one who coined that phrase. But she was definitely the one who popularized it. Gotcha. Yeah. So the first person to literally do it and then really send that yeah, that term to the next level. Yeah, yeah. they referred, I mean, like I said, they referred debugging. to, to debug or, you know, bugs in machines before, but I don't know if it harkens back to actual bugs or if that was just a term they used but yeah in the computer definite bugs <laughs> so cool well thanks for coming over grace yeah coming over for brunch amazing grace mm-hmm. yeah that's cute too yeah amazing grace so that's it for this episode of science brunch about our good friend grace hopper amazing grace Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and check out our website at sciencebrunch.org and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you next time.